This is the Witnesses of History podcast, presented by Jeff Longley. Hello, we start this edition by going back to the 21st of June 1756 and J.Z. Holwell's report on the Black Hole of Calcutta. Calcutta, being the headquarters of the East India Company, was attacked in 1756 by the anti-British Suraj Udawla. Prisoners were locked overnight in the military jail at Fort William, the Black Hole. A year later, Clive defeated the Suraj at Plassey. Figure to yourself, my friend, if possible, the situation of 146 wretches exhausted by continual fatigue and action crammed together in a cube of 18 feet in a close, sultry night in Bengal, shut up to the eastward and southward, the only quarters from whence air could reach us, by dead walls and by a wall and a door to the north, open only to the westward by two windows, strongly barred with iron, from which we could receive scarce any the least circulation of fresh air. What must ensue appeared to me in lively and dreadful colours. The instant I cast my eyes round and saw the size and situation of the room, many unsuccessful attempts were made to force the door for having nothing but our hands to work with and the door opening inward all endeavours were vain and fruitless we had been but few minutes confined before everyone fell into a perspiration so profuse you can form no idea of it this brought on a raging thirst which increased in proportion as the body was drained of its moisture various expedients were thought of to give more room and air to obtain the former, it was moved to put off their clothes. This was approved as a happy notion, and in a few minutes, I believe every man was stripped, myself, Mr. Court, and the two young gentlemen by me excepted. For a little time, they flattered themselves with having gained a mighty advantage. Every hat was put in motion to produce a circulation of air, and Mr. Bailey proposed that every man should sit down on his hams. This expedient was several times put in practice, and at each time many of the poor creatures, whose natural strength was less than that of the others, or who had been more exhausted and could not immediately recover their legs, as others did when the word was given to rise, fell to rise no more, for they were instantly trod to death or suffocated. When the whole body sat down, they were so closely wedged together that they were obliged to use many efforts before they could put themselves in motion to get up again. Before nine o'clock, every man's thirst grew intolerable and respiration difficult. Efforts were made again to force the door, but in vain. Many insults were used to the guard to provoke them to fire in upon us. For my own part, I hitherto felt little pain or uneasiness, but what resulted from my anxiety for the sufferings of those within. By keeping my face between two of the bars, I obtained air enough to give my lungs easy play, though my perspiration was excessive, and thirst commencing. At this period, so strong a urinous volatile effluvia came from the prison that I was not able to turn my head that way for more than a few seconds at a time. Now everybody, excepting those situated in and near the windows, began to grow outrageous and many delirious. Water! Water! became the general cry. And the old Jemadar, before mentioned, taking pity on us, ordered the people to bring some skins of water. 
This was what I dreaded. I foresaw it would prove the ruin of the small chance left us, and essayed many times to speak to him privately to forbid it being brought. But the clamour was so loud it became impossible. The water appeared. Words cannot paint to you the universal agitation and raving the sight of it threw us into. I flattered myself that some, by preserving an equal temper of mind, might outlive the night, but now the reflection which gave me the greatest pain was that I saw no possibility of one escaping to tell the dismal tale. Until the water came, I had myself not suffered much from thirst, which instantly grew excessive. We had no means of conveying it into the prison, but by hats forced through the bars, and thus myself and Messrs. Coles and Scott, notwithstanding the pains they suffered from their wounds, supplied them as fast as possible. But those who have experienced intense thirst, or are acquainted with the cause and nature of this appetite, will be sufficiently sensible it could receive no more than a momentary alleviation. The cause still subsisted. Though we brought full hats within the bars, there ensued such violent struggles and frequent contests to get at it that before it reached the lips of anyone, there would be scarcely a small teacupful left in them. These supplies, like sprinkling water on fire, only served to feed and raise the flame. Oh, my dear sir, how shall I give you a conception of what I felt at the cries and ravings of those in the remoter parts of the prison who could not entertain a probable hope of obtaining a drop, yet could not divest themselves of expectation, however unavailing? And calling on me by the tender consideration of friendship and affection, and who knew they were really dear to me, think, if possible, what my heart must have suffered at seeing and hearing their distress without having it in my power to relieve them for the confusion now became general and horrid. Several quitted the other window, the only chance they had for life, to force their way to the water, and the throng and press upon the window was beyond bearing. Many forcing their passage from the further part of the room pressed down those in their way who had less strength and trampled them to death. From about nine to near eleven, I sustained this cruel scene and painful situation, still supplying them with water, though my legs were almost broke with the weight against them. By this time I myself was near pressed to death, and my two companions, with Mr. William Parker, who had forced himself into the window, were really so. For a great while, they preserved a respect and regard to me, more than indeed I could well expect, our circumstances considered. But now all distinction was lost. My friend Bailey, Mrs. Jenks, Reveley, Law, Buchanan, Simpson, and several others for whom I had just a real esteem and affection, had for some time been dead at my feet, and were now trampled upon by every corporal or common soldier who, by the help of more robust constitutions, had forced their way to the window and held fast by the bars over me, till at last I became so pressed and wedged up I was deprived of all motion. Determined now to give everything up, I called to them and begged, as the last instance of their regard, that they would remove the pressure upon me and permit me to retire out of the window to die in quiet. They gave way, and with much difficulty I forced a passage into the centre of the prison, where the throng was less by the many dead, then I believe amounting to one-third, and the numbers who flocked to the windows, for by this time they had water also at the other window. In the black hole there is a platform corresponding with that in the barrack. I travelled over the dead and repaired to the further end of it, just opposite the other window. 
Here my poor friend Mr. Edward Eyer came staggering over the dead to me, and with his usual coolness and good nature asked me how I did, but fell and expired before I had time to make him a reply. I laid myself down on some of the dead behind me, on the platform, and, recommending myself to heaven, had the comfort of thinking my sufferings could have no long duration. My thirst grew now insupportable, and the difficulty of breathing much increased, and I had not remained in this situation, I believe, ten minutes, when I was seized with a pain in my breast and palpitation of heart, both to the most exquisite degree. These roused and obliged me to get up again, but still the pain, palpitation, thirst, and difficulty of breathing increased. I retained my senses notwithstanding, and had the grief to see death not so near me as I hoped, but could no longer bear the pains I suffered without attempting a relief which I knew fresh air would and could only give me. I instantly determined to push for the window opposite to me and by an effort of double the strength I had ever before possessed, gained the third rank at it and with one hand seized a bar and by that means gained the second, though I think there were at least six or seven ranks between me and the window. In a few moments the pain, palpitation and difficulty of breathing ceased but my thirst continued intolerable. I called aloud for water, for God's sake. I had been concluded dead, but as soon as they found me amongst them, they, gave, they still had the respect and tenderness for me to cry out, Give him water! Give him water! Nor would one of them at the window attempt to touch it until I had drank. But from the water I had no relief. My thirst was rather increased by it, so I determined to drink no more, but patiently wait the event and kept my mouth moist from time to time by sucking the perspiration out of my shirt sleeves and catching the drops as they fell like heavy rain from my head and face. You can hardly imagine how unhappy I was if any of them escaped my mouth. I came into the prison without coat or waistcoat. The season was too hot to bear the former, and the latter tempted the avarice of one of the guards who robbed me of it when we were under the veranda. Whilst I was at this second window, I was observed by one of my miserable companions on the right of me in the expedient of laying my thirst by sucking my shirt sleeve. He took the hint and robbed me from time to time of a considerable part of my store, though after I detected him, I had even the address to begin on that sleeve first when I thought my reservoirs were sufficiently replenished and our mouths and noses often met in the contest." This plunderer, I found afterwards, was a worthy young gentleman in the service, Mr. Lushington, one of the few who escaped from death, and since paid me the compliment of assuring me he believed he owed his life to the many comfortable draughts he had had from my sleeves. Before I hit upon this happy expedient, I had in an ungovernable fit of thirst attempted drinking my urine, but it was so intensely bitter there was no enduring a second taste, whereas no Bristol water could be more soft or pleasant than what arose from perspiration. Many to the right and left sunk with the violent pressure and were soon suffocated, for now a stream arose from the living and the dead, which affected us all in its circumstances, as if we were forcibly held by our heads over a bowl of strong, volatile spirit of hartshorn until suffocated. Nor could the effluvia of the one be distinguished from the other, and frequently when I was forced by the load upon my head and shoulders to hold my face down, I was obliged, near as I was to the window, instantly to raise it again to escape suffocation. When the day broke, and the gentleman found that no entreaties could prevail to get the door opened, it occurred to one of them, I think to Mr. Secretary Cook, to make a search for me 
in hopes I might have influence enough to gain a release from this scene of misery. Accordingly, Mrs. Lushington and Walcott undertook the search and by my shirt discovered me under the dead upon the platform. They took me from thence and, imagining I had some signs of life, brought me towards the window I had first possession of. But as life was equally dear to every man and the stench arising from the dead bodies was grown so intolerable, no one would give up his station in or near the window, so they were obliged to carry me back again. But soon after, Captain Mills, now captain of the company's yacht, who was in possession of a seat in the window, had the humanity to offer to resign it. I was again brought by the same gentleman and placed in the window. At this juncture, the Viceroy of Bengal, who had received an account of the havoc death made among us, sent one of his guards to inquire if the chief survived. They showed me to him, told I had appearance of life remaining, and believed I might recover if the door was open very soon. This answer being returned to the Suba, that is the Viceroy, an order came immediately for our release, it being then near six in the morning. As the door opened inwards, and as the dead were piled up against it and covered all the rest of the floor, it was impossible to open it by any efforts from without. It was therefore necessary that the dead should be removed by the few that were within, who had become so feeble that the task, though it was the condition of life, was not performed without the utmost difficulty, and it was twenty minutes after the order came before the door could be opened. About a quarter to six in the morning, the poor remains of a hundred and forty-six souls, being no more than three and twenty, came out of the black hole alive, but in a condition which made it very doubtful whether they would see the morning of the next day. Among the living was Mrs. Carey, but poor Leech was among the dead. The bodies were dragged out of the hole by the soldiers and thrown promiscuously into a ditch of an unfinished ravelin, which was afterwards filled with earth. Well, from that horrific account from the 18th century of one of the far-flung corners of empire, let's move forward to June the 22nd, 1897, as Queen Victoria, the Empress, attains her diamond jubilee. Any sovereign, even one so well accustomed to the most sincere and heartiest manifestations of loyalty as our own beloved Queen, must have been deeply gratified at the reception which awaited Her Majesty at Buckingham Palace. For hours before her arrival, a dense crowd filled all the white space in front of the palace. It was a loyal and good-humoured crowd, and the major part was composed of the humbler ranks of Her Majesty's subjects. Many visitors from the country and from abroad were also present. The lamentation amongst those who failed to catch a glimpse of the sovereign as she passed along was not concealed, and it was undoubtedly sincere. Only a few policemen were present to keep the roadway clear. There was no elaborate precaution for the protection of the head of the state, and none indeed was necessary, for everyone in the crowd was a loyal guardian for the sovereign. Immediately after the Queen entered the gates, the royal standard was hoisted on the palace, thus intimidating that the sovereign was once again in residence in the capital city of her dominions. Shortly after her arrival, the Queen lunched in private in her own apartments and afterwards she enjoyed a brief rest before entering upon the fatiguing duties of the afternoon and evening. That report from the Daily Telegraph, 22nd of June, 1897. And now to conclude, we have Richard Whitbourne's account from 1610 of a Newfoundland mermaid. 
Now also, I will not omit to relate something of a strange creature that I first saw here in the year 1610, in the morning early as I was standing by the waterside in the harbour of St John's, which I espied very swiftly to come swimming towards me, looking cheerfully as it had been a woman by the face, eyes, nose, mouth, chin, ears, neck and forehead. It seemed to be so beautiful and in those parts so well proportioned, having round about the head all blue strakes resembling hair down to the neck. But certainly it was hair, for I beheld it long, and another of my company also yet living. That was not then far from me, and seeing the same coming so swiftly towards me, I stepped back, for it was coming within the length of a long pike. Which then this strange creature saw that I went from it, it presently thereupon dived a little under water and did swim to the place where I before landed, whereby I beheld the shoulders and back down to the middle, so to be square, white and smooth as the back of a man, and from the middle to the hinder part, pointing in proportion like a broad hooked arrow, how it was proportioned in the forepart from the neck and shoulders I know not, but the same came shortly after unto a boat, wherein one William Hawkridge, then my servant, was that have been since a captain in a ship in the East Indies, and is lately there employed again by Sir Thomas Smith in a like voyage. And the same creature did put both his hands upon the side of the boat, and did strive to come into him and others then in the said boat, whereat they were afraid, and one of them stuck, struck at it a full blow on the head, whereat it fell off from them and afterwards it came to two other boats in the harbour. The men in them, for fear, fled to land. This, I suppose, was a mermaid. Listening to the Witnesses of History podcast with Jeff Lumley. The music was by Eric Matthias, www.soundimage.org. <laughs>